Hello, friends. Hi, everyone. My name is Misty Denman. As always, it's my joy to be here with you today. I love studying God's Word um, alongside each of you and have for a long time. I wish I had been able to be at every single person's small group table this morning and just sat in on your discussion because I'm so interested to know what you thought of these two chapters. I have a feeling the responses might be fairly wide-ranging from super interesting, love all the intrigue, to I don't even know what's happening in this story. If you fall into the, this is really interesting camp, I'm with you on that. And I hope that you think it's even more interesting and um, clenches your heart before our time together is over. But if you're in the, I don't even know exactly who these people are or what's happening camp, I'm with you too, because the honest truth is the first day that I sat down to really study this um, in preparation for today, it took me two full hours to chart out who was who and who's doing what and whose cousins, uncles, generals is having revenge on who. And so, and, and also why does everybody like to stab each other in the stomach so much? These um, can be a little tricky um, stories to understand. Um, so I hope we can make sense of them before the end of the today. Also, our chapters today are sort of sandwiched in between a couple of really big events in Israel's history. One is the death of Saul, happened at the end of 1 Samuel and recorded at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And then next week, we are going to see David finally become um, the king um, over all of a united Israel. But today, we're kind of in this in-between time. I really only barely knew about any of this before I began studying it. But as always, every word in Scripture matters. Every word has purpose. And as I took the time, as we've taken the time to really look at it carefully, you realize how rich it is with meaning, even when uh, the stories may not be as well known to us as some others are. In today's chapters, chapters 3 and 4, the tide turns in Israel. The tide turns from a civil war toward a unified nation. It turns from Saul's throne finally to David's throne. It turns from Saul's regime, who were people bent on doing life their way, to a king who seems bent on doing life God's way, even when his personal cost for that is high. While the tide does turn from Saul's house to God's chosen king, David, it wasn't easy or straightforward. And I wonder if you can relate. I certainly can. Have you ever been excited or committed to doing something, thought you had plans, thought you knew what the Lord wanted you to do and how you wanted to do it, and then you just felt like roadblocks just kept popping up along the way? And it just feels like maybe this is too hard. Maybe this is too confusing. Maybe this is too frustrating. Maybe this isn't what I should be doing. I've been there. Um, maybe you have too. I think David's story shows us uh, to not give up on doing things God's way. I think his example helps us to see how we can believe and live according to Psalm 37.5. It's on the top of your outline. And it says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. 
David wrote Psalm 37 much later in his life. We're going to actually look at several portions of Psalm 37 today. You might want to go home later and read all of Psalm 37 because I think once you um, look at today's story and then you go back and read all of Psalm 37 um, and know that David himself wrote it, it brings a lot to life. Okay, but now let's open up 2 Samuel chapter 3. Let's see how this story begins to unfold. I'm going to be reading just parts of verses 1 through 11 right now. You can follow along with me. And these verses really continue the story we began last week in chapter 2 of Saul's house divided. Look with me at verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Okay, then in verses two through five, you get this list of four additional wives that David has taken in just the last few years, um, in addition to the two he already had. It also lists their sons. Um, David has um, had all of these marriages in just a few years. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. So pick back up with me in verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very over, angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head in Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and you have not given in, and, not, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So this scene here is really significant. Let's talk about it. If you go back to verse 1, which we also looked at at the very end of last week, this is a summary of the years between Saul's death, which was about seven years ago as chapter 3 opens, and David's taking the throne over a unified nation of Israel. These were years of terrible civil war in which Saul's house ruled over these 11 northern tribes. They called themselves Israel. And David ruled over this one large southern tribe of Judah. That was his own tribe. All of them are God's chosen people. All of them should have been um, a united um, 12 united tribes under um, the flag of Israel. They were not during these years. During the years that followed Saul's death, David's rule continued to grow stronger. Saul's regime weakened, but the civil war is still happening. Okay, now let's go back to all these wives here. Was our great King David, who does so many things right, doing things God's way with this? No. At this time in Israel's history, polygamy was tolerated, although it was never God's plan. But you notice we did read in our homework this week that God had very specifically instructed kings not to take many wives. This list here is a foreshadowing of terrible things to come for a lot of people 
because this was a significant area of life that David chose to do what was right in his own eyes rather than what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So we're going to leave that for now, come back to it in later chapters, um, but this is definitely not the end of the story with that. Okay, then when you start looking at verse 6, this is where some real intrigue begins. Ishbosheth is Saul's surviving son. He's the current king. And as we talked about last week, he's basically a puppet or a figurehead. The real power in Saul's house or regime now belongs to Abner, who was Saul's former general. Abner put Ishbosheth on the throne. Abner is really in control. We get insight into this contrast between the motives and character of Abner and David in verse 6 when you read that Abner was making himself strong. Abner was a man who made himself strong while David trusted God to make him strong. Abner schemed and plotted while David prayed for direction and then simply did what God told him to do. We saw that a number of times in chapter 2. So as we move through the story, that puppet and puppet master situation with Abner and Ishbosheth doesn't last. When Abner deeply dishonors Ishbosheth, their alliance is going to be permanently broken. So Abner goes to and sleeps with one of Ishbosheth's concubines um, that he had inherited from his father Saul. Ishbosheth finally shows some spine here, I think, when he reacts with fury. Um, and let me say this now: having concubines is gross and it's wrong. These women have a story to tell. We aren't going to tell their story today, um, but the Lord did not overlook their lives. He saw these women. Just as he sees us now, he cared about their lives. Um, I've heard Deb Haygood say many times as we've studied scripture together over the years that it was hard to be a woman in biblical times. I think that's the truth. I think there's an example of that here. But according to the pagan culture around them that Israel had adopted um, when a new king came into power, uh, he acquired the old king's concubines and wives as his own, as an inheritance. And that's what's happened here. Ishbosheth inherited Saul's concubines. Now, it's unclear exactly what Abner's motives were when he did this. Might have been a power play because if he had had a um, son with one of these concubines and that son grew up, he would have had um, um, perhaps the ability to become the king. Um, perhaps that is what Abner wanted for one of his offspring to become the true king instead of only being in the background. Maybe Abner thought that Ishbosheth was such a weak-willed man that he wouldn't do anything when he found out, and it was just something he wanted to do. My personal theory is that Abner was a really astute politician. He saw that the tide was turning toward David and his kingship. I think he thought his best bet for keeping his own head and maybe even keeping some power in the future um, uh, rule of David and his kingship was to throw his allegiance now be behind David. And so he did the one thing that just might humiliate Ishbosheth enough to cause a real problem between them. And that was his excuse to transfer his loyalty to David. Don't know if that's what happened. That's my theory. I don't want us to miss out though on a very important bit of insight we do get from verse nine. And I want to look at it again. This is Abner speaking, and he said, God do so to Abner or himself, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David 
what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. So what you see there is that Abner knows and has known that it was God's will for David to be king. Abner knew this all the time that he's been scheming behind the scenes to keep Saul's family and himself in power. You know, during Saul's years as king and leader of the people, he really set an example over and over of doing what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it instead of trusting what God asked him to do and submitting to the Lord's wills. I think others like Abner here, just following in Saul's footsteps, there was a legacy there and it caused war and bloodshed and misery and national humiliation for Israel. They were a nation divided. Saul's own house was divided. This was not a good situation and it all stemmed back from choosing to do things their own way. Okay, I want to continue reading. I want to pick up in verse 12 here. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you, David, to bring all Israel over to you. And he, David, said, good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, and that is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, with you when you, uh, when you see my face. Okay, I want to stop right there for a second because uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into this. But if you remember, if you were with us when we studied First um, Samuel, David's first wife was named Michael. She was the daughter of Saul. Um, they seemed to have a good relationship in um, 1 Samuel. At some point before Saul died, he took his daughter, Michael, away from David. She has another husband now. David is asking for her back. There are a variety of reasons for this, um, or a variety of possible reasons for this. It's a really interesting story. Um, also, if you have time, you might go back and look at all of that um, and study it for yourself. Um, because that's also another story for another day. I wish we could talk about every line of this story. So that happens. Um, Michael is brought to David. It's a real sad scene for um, her and her current husband right now. But skip with me down to verse 17. Now Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, meaning those 11 northern tribes under Saul's regime, saying, for some time past, you've been seeking David as a king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, meaning the people within the tribe of Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and I'll go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, meaning David, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So God, in his perfect sovereignty, uses this sort of mess of a situation, this infighting in Saul's house, to move David another step closer to becoming king over a unified Israel. And I think it's a little hard to overstate what an important moment this is in Israel's history. Whatever his true motives were, 
Abner initiates a covenant between the house of Saul and the house of David that will eventually unify the nation under David's kingship. Abner encourages key leaders in those northern tribes to acknowledge David as their king, the king of God's choosing for all Israel. Okay, and did you notice what Abner acknowledged when he spoke with them? He acknowledged that a number of people in those northern tribes had already been talking about how how David should be their king. Abner himself knew it was God's will for David to be king. The people were beginning to think the same thing. They were daring to voice it. It sort of makes sense to me. Um, It wasn't a big secret that the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel many years ago now had told Saul that the throne would be removed from him and it would be given to David David has, don't forget, this really great reputation in Israel. He was the king, I mean, he was the David of, you know, David and Goliath fame. He was the David who had led many an army in battle against um, Israel's enemies over the last 15 or so years. He was known to be um, brave. He was known to be a great warrior. He was known to be selfless in those areas. Um, he was a national hero, more or less. And then you've got Ishbosheth, bless his heart. He doesn't seem to have any stories of any kind of bravery. It doesn't ever say that he went into battle. It does. There's just nothing there about his character, his leadership, um, who he was with a, with, as a person. He seems weak. He uses the word fear a lot. And to my knowledge, nobody ever carved a fine marble statue of Ishbosheth like they did of David that we see on our cover every week. Far more importantly than that, David was the man chosen by God to lead. So until now, Abner and Ishbosheth, they have just been unsuccessfully trying to hold back that tide. But Abner and Ishbosheth's plans ultimately failed because they were not in line with God's plans. Okay, look with me on your verse sheet at Proverbs 19:21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I also like how the New Living Translation puts it. The New Living Translation says, "You can make many plans, but the Lord's purposes will prevail. Okay, so then you look at verse 18. Again, clear that Abner knew all along that it was God's will for David and not Ishbosheth to be king. And at this point, I want us to again think back to the bloodshed of this war. I counted, um, I went back to chapter two that talked about a lot of the battles and the the recent battles in this civil war. Um, Just in chapter two, there were 403 people recorded that had died in this internal bloodshed. These are real people with real families. There was real heartbreak. There was real waste of life there. And then you think about how that civil war has um, weakened the nation of Israel who should have been set apart from everyone around them as a people of peace and unity and prosperity and blessing and abundance because they were under um, God's um, leadership and care. All of that suffering and death and national shame could have been avoided had Abner been willing to obey God's word and God's plan. 
Abner's disobedience and our personal disobedience to God just about always has a ripple effect. We may think, maybe Abner thought he was turning just a little bit of a blind eye to God's way and God's word. Maybe he thought he was going to obey later, just putting it off for a little while, and it wouldn't really affect anybody in the long term. But it did, and it does. It very much does in this story. It very much does with us, sometimes in ways that aren't immediately obvious, but the consequences can often be devastating. And I'll bet if I asked um, most of us, we could think of a time in our lives where um, either us or somebody um, in our realm chose to disobey God's word, even just for now, even just for a little bit, um, and the consequences were pretty serious. But now the tide continues to turn. Abner, along with this delegation of leaders, pledges loyalty and support to David, and they are going to work to unite all 12 tribes under under David's rule. So all of those years, all of those years of running and fighting and treachery and um, having to dodge spears, um, here is a moment where God gives David this enormous enormous push toward the throne because now for the most part all major resistance to his rule has vanished there is going to be peace between the houses of Saul and David for the first time in so many years I think David's had a lot of surprising things happen in his life but I wonder if he had some moment during this time here where he was alone with the Lord after Abner his enemy came to him in um made a peace agreement with him where he thought, what has just happened? How quickly can God turn the tide when the time is right? I have a feeling he and the Lord had some good conversation about that. Um, Again, later when David was a much older man, penned Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, he will act. But I wonder if he was remembering this very day when he wrote um, Psalm 37, 23 on your verse sheet. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. You know, both before and after Saul's death, while David was waiting and waiting for God to clear the path for him to become king, he allowed the Lord to make him strong. Okay, how did he do that? He was a man of prayer. We have seen that many times. He was a man who was quick to obey when the Lord spoke. He was a man who waited on the Lord to act on his behalf. David seemed to have this solid belief that God would fulfill his promises, and he waited until God put the pieces into place. He does not take matters into his own hands. We talked about it last week. It's Evident again this week, I just think it's the most remarkable characteristic and trait of David. In our own stretches of confusion and chaos and setbacks and disappointments and whatever hard things we're up against, we also can lay our needs honestly before the Lord. We can wait for Him to clear a path for us. And what do we do in the meantime when we wait? Because waiting is a lot easier said than done. We keep praying. We keep laying our needs at the Lord's feet. We choose God's way during times of waiting. He will and he can bring peace. 
we can commit to trusting God and his perfect timing, even when it's hard to understand, even when it's impossible to understand. When we do that, we can echo the words of Micah 7-7 on your verse sheet. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So if only the story ended there, but it doesn't because Abner is murdered and David must respond. Okay, so let's keep reading. We're going to pick back up in verse 22. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid. Remember, Joab is um, David's military general. He, they were bringing much spoil with them. But Abner, was not, but Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had been sent away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. A lot of pronouns here. Abner came to David, David let him go, and Abner went in peace. Then Joab went to the king, David, and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. Basically, he's saying, Abner just came to spy on you and nothing else. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Job took him out aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. If you remember um, last week, his, Joab's brother Asahel, at the end of one of these um, skirmishes that they had, was pursuing um, Abner, uh, wouldn't stop. Abner said, please stop, go after somebody else. Otherwise, this isn't going to end well. Um, Ashahel did not stop pursuing him. Abner kills him, and now we're getting revenge on that. Afterward, when David heard of it, heard of that murder, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. Basically, this is a curse on Joab. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Okay, so three times earlier, we are told that Abner and his men were sent away by David in peace. But peace was not to last for this moment. The commander of David's army, Joab, accuses Abner of spying on David, even calls David's leadership into question. I think Joab is responding to this whole situation out of his emotion and out of his own personal anger, and therefore he has lost his ability to work under David's um, God-given authority and to think and act appropriately here. I guess that's sort of an understatement, actually. Um, the scene here when Joab first learns about Abner coming to David really has served as a warning to me when I'm tempted to react quickly out of emotion which I confess is something I do fairly regularly. But I think we've all been there, that temptation to look at a situation and instead of stopping and evaluating it prayerfully, taking it at face value, 
we, I jump to conclusions about the people and their motives and um, what's happened in the past and what I think I know. I, this story has made me never want to do that again. I hope none of us will be like Joab, um, people who only see things through their own emotions. I hope instead we can be David's um, people who see other people as God sees them, people who choose to honor others, not necessarily because they've earned it, but because it's what God has asked us to do. So Joab sent some of his people out to capture Abner. This was not okay. First, Joab was acting on his own. Um, David didn't know what he was doing. Joab was under David's authority. It was wrong to go behind David's back. He was defying the leader that um, God had put in place over him. Joab murders Abner, avenging the death of his brother. And it was death by sword through the stomach, that same way that Abner had killed his brother. This was a revenge killing, pure and simple. He may have talked about this whole spying thing, but there's nothing in the text that would make us think that the reason that he killed um, Abner was anything other than pure revenge. Let's look at what God has to say about revenge in the book of Romans on your verse sheet. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, sometimes God himself chooses to um, deal rather directly with our sin. Um, but in a situation like this, our the default expectation is that we would allow God to bring justice for somebody um, like a murderer through our civil government. Our own um, justice system is by no means perfect because it's made up of imperfect people, but it is a good system. It's one that God has allowed us to be under, and that would have been the proper way for, and is the proper way now for um, Joab to have dealt with his brother's death. One last thing I want to say about justice before we go on. Justice isn't always um, seen here on earth, and that's a hard, hard truth. It's hard when we see it in other people. Um, it's especially hard um, when it has affected us personally. God will deal with all sin when each of us stand before him for eternity. For believers, um, our sin has already been paid for by the blood of Christ, which is a gift beyond measure, because the truth is we deserve death just as much and to be separated from God as the worst person on this planet. But, those, but for those who have rejected him in this life, God's justice will be their own to bear, and we are to trust God in that as hard as that can be to do. All right, let's continue reading. Let's see David's response to this death. We're going to read beginning in chapter 3, verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept over him. 
Then all the people came to persuade David to eat while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also. If I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. This was a a sign of deep mourning. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. It pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner the son to death, Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So remember we talked about that ripple effect of sin. Here's a good example. Not only is Joab on the hook for murder now, but he has just killed the man who has committed himself to bringing those 11 tribes, northern tribes, over to David. And just when it looks like David is so close to being a king over united Israel, his own general kills the man that's brokering this peace agreement. He also puts David in great jeopardy of again being seen as the enemy of those 11 northern tribes. You know, David's no stranger to having men killed for lesser things than this. He chooses instead to curse Joab instead of meeting out the death penalty. I guess that's merciful. I think he thought he saw that as as merciful. Um, It feels pretty brutal to me. There would be chronic running sores, lives of want and need, violent deaths, not just for Joab, but for his family as well. Again, that ripple effect of sin. But David's curse is seen as a less um, significant penalty than death. And there's a lot of um, speculation as to why David chose to do that. We don't know for sure. Back to David's perspective on Abner's death, you really see here from a human perspective, um, even with the recent peace agreement that, that I, at least one, might think that David wouldn't have been all that personally bothered by Abner's death. I think he could have easily understood from a political perspective what a big deal it is that somebody from um, his own leadership had killed Abner. But it seems here that he has a real um, personal and profound mourning for David, um, even though Abner has been really the main reason that for seven years after Saul died, David is continuing, wait, to be king over um, all of Israel. But David leads this national mourning of Abner so deeply and so publicly. David demonstrated real compassion for Abner and a desire for true justice and restoration of broken relationships. It's pretty remarkable. David is pulling off here what I think is a seemingly impossible thing to you to do because after years of bitter fighting, his commander kills their commander and instead of it causing this giant step backwards um, in a division again or a deepening division between Um, Israel and Judah, David manages to use this terrible thing to unite the nation. David's character rooted in this just deep and abiding faith guided his actions and his actions bring peace and unity instead of division and hatred. David didn't do this alone. It was God's will In God's plan that David be anointed king, God uses David's obedience to usher in his plan. 
And again, look with me at some of David's words in Psalm 37 on your verse sheet. This time, Psalm 37, 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. That was true in David's life. It's true in our life as well. Okay, well, unfortunately, carnage isn't over yet. Let's look at chapter 4 now, beginning in verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed. I don't think there was a lot of it, but his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bana, and the name of other was Rechab. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Now, verse 4 tells the story of Jonathan's son named Mephibosheth. He comes um, into a really significant, beautiful story in a few weeks. So we're going to skip over verse 4 and pick back up in verse 5. Now the sons of Remen, Rechab, and Bana set out about the heat of the day. Remember, these are men of Ishbosheth's own army. Uh, they set out about the heat of the day, and they came to the house of Ishbosheth, who was taking his noonday rest. And they came in the midst of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to, put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day they're talking about David, on Saul and his offspring. But David answered these two men, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men, he's talking about them, had killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside a pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in a tomb, in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Now Ishbosheth is murdered, and again David has to respond. The men of who kill Ishbosheth did not come from David's camp. Ishbosheth's own men kill him in his sleep. They are doing this, hoping to win David's favor. They probably also saw what the future held that David was about to be the new king. And when that happened, those in um, Ishbosheth's um, um, military command, the deposed army basically, could very easily have been put to death. That would have been um, probably an expectation. Angling to avoid their own executions, they kill Ishbosheth and then they go and brag about it to David. They really misjudge David's character. They think he'll be pleased and how they, with how they helped David out. They don't know David. Things don't go according to their plans. Okay, you notice that these two brothers mix truth and lie when they report back to David, which is a very common um, thing to do. Truth, Ishbosheth was Saul's son, and Saul did try to kill David. The lie is that Saul and his family are your enemies. 
One of the things that is so remarkable to me about David is his absolute refusal from day one to see Saul as his enemy. We saw it through um, all the ways through 1 Samuel in very remarkable ways. You see it in his attitude here. He has always seen God, I mean, seen uh, Saul as God's anointed king, and he has refused to kill Saul, even when he had a couple of easy opportunities. He's even refused to dishonor Saul in any way. So David, I feel like he's like completely astonished at the stupidity of his men. David values justice because his God values justice. Now, he has had other men killed for crimes against Saul's family. David has had murderers put to death. He has demonstrated his own innocence in the matter here. That mutilation and public hanging of their bodies served as this very crucial political statement to those northern tribes that once again, there's no blood on David's hand. He did not do this. He does not um, stand behind it. Um, Saul's regime continues to tumble down, but it is the Lord who is bringing that about, not David. It is and it will continue to be very vital that those who were still loyal to to Saul, and clearly there were some, understand that David did not make any move on his own to overthrow Saul's house. David just gave Abner this honorable burial in Hebron. Now David gives Ishbosheth an honorable burial as much as he can. He did what he could to show respect for Saul's family. I think for me, the most important thing about chapter four is what David says in verse nine. He says, as the Lord lives, remember the Lord has always been the living God to David, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Those are great truths there that he hits on. And he's really just having this, um, I think, almost off-the-cuff statement that reveals his heart for the Lord, who he thinks the Lord is and what he knows, or who he knows the Lord to be and what he knows the Lord to have done for him in his life. The Lord is our living God. He is active. He is very much present every minute of the day, just like he was with David. David trusts God and not himself and not anybody else and not the right set of circumstances to protect his life. David, like many of us, has experienced countless hard and unfair and unjust things in his life. And he's gone through all those hard things while he was a faithful follower of God. David knows that God is good and faithful and that God acts on the behalf of his people. David's words teach us that when life gets hard, the Lord can and does rescue us. David's actions teach us that when people are really, 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 really hard, we still can allow the Lord to deal with them. David's life teaches us to choose God's way during adversity because he will help us and he will protect us. And because of that, we can commit to taking refuge in God alone. And I think when we do that, like David, we can declare the truth of Psalm 37, 39 through 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. 
The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to just praise you here today. Um, it is your, your, the work of your son that has given us your righteousness, first of all. So thank you that those of us who know you can be called righteous. Thank you, Lord, that you are our stronghold in time of trouble. Thank you that you are always present with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you, Lord, for your words here that remind us that you are our help and our deliverer. Lord, um, help us please to take refuge in you, not in our own strength, not in our own plans, not in our own ways, but in you alone. Help us to see and know what that actually looks like in moments of crisis and in moments of pain. Help us, Lord, um, to have the courage to follow you faithfully, um, no matter the um, outcome of that um, and no matter the hardship that that brings. Lord, would you bless every woman in this room um, would you help us to be women who follow you um, so closely, Lord? Um, and may everything we do and say and think be pleasing to you. I ask all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.